0: Crash monitoring emerged as a software category over the last decade. Crash monitoring software allows developers to understand when their applications are crashing on client devices. For example, we have an app for software engineering daily that people download on Android or iOS. Users download the app to their smartphone, and when the user is playing an episode and the app crashes, the details of the crash are sent to a server that collects all of these crash reports. Since our app is not perfect, it does crash, and these crash reports are extremely useful for helping us understand when our application is breaking on those client devices. And this is really important because there are so many client surfaces to test. You have iOS, you have a million different flavors of Android and all the different hardware configurations, you've got browsers... You've got the specific configurations of the browsers given those client operating systems. It's quite a detailed spectrum of different clients that you are serving with your application, and so you get weird crashes as a result of those different client devices sometimes. As a business, crash monitoring is a category that has some similarities to log management because there are lots of companies that offer crash monitoring, much like log management, And the problem is extremely heterogeneous. At first glance, it it seems like kind of a simple problem to solve. It seems like just a simple engineering problem. It's a market without winner-take-all or winner-take-most dynamics. But at scale, crash monitoring becomes a deeply complex engineering problem. From indexing to database choices to complex distributed systems trade-offs, crash monitoring is not a simple business and it promises to provide an extremely good business for the few companies who are able to out-execute the crowded market of different crash monitoring providers. James Smith is the CEO of Bugsnag, a company that makes crash monitoring and application stability tools. James returns to the show to discuss the growth stage engineering challenges of error monitoring and the business opportunities that come with them. James Smith, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me again, Jeff. You're seven years into building Bugsnag. Let's start with a simple question. What's the biggest mistake you've made building this company
1: so far? The one biggest mistake? (laughs) I think when you build a business as a first-time founder, my co-founder Simon and I both, uh, it's our first time being a founder in a business. I think that in hindsight, a lot of the things you do, you look back on and say, I would definitely do that differently. So there is a laundry list of things that if we were going to start again day one with the knowledge that we do now, we would probably do differently. I think with our business, some of the mistakes that we've made have been around, this is a bit of a weird one, but maybe being a bit ambitious with um, product scope and new releases. I remember when we launched our, we called it internally dashboard two, which was a brand new dashboard that uh, was powered by Elasticsearch and fully indexed under the hood. So we could Provide our search functionality. We decided not only to change the database, we decided to also change the entire interface. We decided to move to React at the same time. We decided to throw in a couple of our first microservices at the same time. And so when we launched, it was exactly what we wanted it to be, but it was a bit creaky for a while. So we had some uh, performance issues for a couple of months. Uh, we luckily were able to squash out the big ones first. But I think. The being ambitious on product scope is a lot easier when you are a company that doesn't have any customers. When you have customers, and especially in a business like ours, you're ingesting billions of crash reports per day. You have to make sure that when you cut over to that new system, it is smooth and it is reliable and it scales. And so, yeah, I think we're, we're less... I think when we're rolling out new technologies now, we try and do them one at a time or a couple at a time and our ambitions get real then a little bit and product has to be more creative about how we break up and, and scope projects into chunks nowadays. So probably we've done that a couple of times now and we almost have a hard rule that's not written down, which is like break things up into chunks. Don't don't rewrite the entire product. <laughs> so those different th all those different things. The it sounds like I
0: mean the elastic search part of it sounds like it you had to do that, but Mm -hmm. maybe not the microservices, maybe not the
1: migrating to React, would you have done those things sequentially instead of all at the same time? I think it would have been really difficult. The Elasticsearch part we had to do. The Elasticsearch part as well, I think was only difficult because we ended up running a very large Elasticsearch cluster. With very little Elasticsearch experience. And you have to learn all the quirks of it, you know, throw more RAM at the JVM, all that kind of stuff. Once you know how to deal with the beast, it's fine. I think what we tried to do is we tried to cut it over in chunks. And I think probably if we were gonna do it again, we would design the system such that we could cut over certain parts of it test it scale it and then cut over different parts in future so for example put all our data into Elasticsearch, set up the indexes that match the previous mongo indexes let that run and hum for a while while we're tuning it and then maybe merge and roll out the uh, the the react changes and the the ui changes that probably would have been the way to go but yeah new all new technologies at once Tell me about building a developer tool in
0: 2019. How has the environment changed and how has the company changed as you've matured?
1: Oh, wow. It's it's night and day to when we started the company. So Simon and I quit our jobs at our previous company to, to start working on BugsNag at the end of 2012. We incorporated the business in in February, 2013. And in February, 2013, in order to it wasn't the recession, but in order to raise money for a developer platform, you needed investors that really understood what a developer platform was and why they matter. And back in 2013, that wasn't the norm. And it's taken a lot of, I think, wins over the years with Twilio's IPO and GitHub getting acquired by Microsoft for all VCs to realize there is a scalable business model behind these things. And I think that yeah, people, th- I mean, you even use the word developer tool as well. Like that, for an investor perspective, the word tool to them implies, you know, this is a small, this is a one-off thing. Something I you get in, get out. This is not a part of your day-to-day. This is not a crucial part of your process. But yeah, I think attitudes towards developer tools as a real productivity increase and therefore something that is worth paying for has changed massively. I remember, I won't name names, but I remember the week after the Microsoft acquired GitHub I got numerous VC emails coming in saying, hey, we have a new thesis around investing in developer tools. And a couple of these investors were investors that may have had feedback during our series A uh, that they didn't like the developer tool space. And so whether that is just, you know, unrelated feedback, and they're just trying to be nice to us or whatever. But in reality, everyone now is on board with the fact that, you know, this audience is really important. And the software is eating the world and developers are in charge of that. So give them the best tools. The pickaxe analogy uh, always comes to mind. Uh, In the gold rush, the people who really made the money were the pickaxe sellers. So it makes sense in our space too.
0: Your investors are very strong. You have Matrix, Benchmark, and Google Ventures for your, that's seed A and B, right? That's right. Yeah. How did you convince those top investors? Because I remember earlier on. I've been following Bugsnag since I started the podcast four years ago, and earlier on, I couldn't tell Bugsnag from the other five to ten crashes. That's right. There was monitoring. a lot of players in the space. There's a lot of players. At this point, you seem like you've pulled away from the pack, but earlier on, you did manage to differentiate yourself in how you presented to investors? How did you differentiate yourself? Because I'm sure you got those questions from those top investors. How are you different from X, Y, and Z?
1: That's right. Yeah, it's I think there's two parts to it. I think that there's a boring answer and a fun answer. The boring answer is that Simon and I cared about revenue from day one in the company. So when we quit our our previous job, we spent the first, I think it was eight or nine months bootstrapping the business. And we bootstrapped the business with an eye on revenue because we wanted to see if this was a thing that could make money. Also more realistically I think I talked about this before, we were living in a, an apartment in the sunset uh, me, my wife, uh, Simon his then fiance, both of our cats and we had to make rent and so I think even Paul Graham talks about rum and profitability and for us I think it was rent and sandwiches pretty much. so we had a, a laser focus on building revenue and so when you go out to raise a seed round or an a round, you you've got to prove that this is a business. so yes there's a huge vision part on how you're going to make this a billion dollar business but you have to prove that you can make money now. So we went into these meetings with charts that look pretty nice. You know, we were like, this is how many developers are using us. And this is how much revenue we're making. And here's some cool logos that you may have heard of. Even I remember one of our really, really early customers was WWE, the wrestling company. And they weren't spending that much money with us, but it was really cool to have that on a deck and show that to investors. (laughs) And I thought it was cool as well. So that's the boring answer. The boring answer is every time we've gone out to raise, every time we've gone out to pitch, we've had financials that looked appealing to investors. And fundamentally, that's what investors exist for. They ex- exist to return for, for their uh, LPs. So that's the boring answer. I think the the fun answer, which is the the second layer on these decks and these conversations I had with these investors is, well, first off, are investors, all, all three of those the, the firms, Matrix Benchmark and, and GV, all understand this space. They're not people who just, they're not the people who emailed me later and said, we have a thesis on right. this now. They got it from day one, which is fantastic. But then I was kind of explaining to them how this, as a software engineer, I don't write much code anymore, but as a software engineer, I would spend something like 40, 50% of my time finding and fixing bugs. And there are some software engineers out there that are very motivated to do that and spend their time doing that. And I have met them. They do exist. But most people, especially product centric software engineers want to be building features, want to be building product. And so pitching the the argument around if technology is key to your business and every company is adopting technology to differentiate, then you need to have the best tools and the best software available. And your customers will notice if it's broken or if it's bad. I mean, we even, it's kind of obvious now that we, we, we've got to the stage and size that we're at. But at the time, I think you have to paint that picture for the investors that this is a very costly thing in terms of revenue. Uh, if you're causing customers to churn, for example, and also in terms of like ha- churn of, of software engineers who don't want to work on fixing bugs. So yeah, a bit of we're making money and it's up and to the right and a bit of this product vision matters in the the new world of software. But I'm
0: sure they looked at the other providers and I mean, it's always interesting because I mean, you, you might be the Datadog of this space, right? Like Datadog, I'm still trying to unpack why Datadog was the company. To, yeah. has become the company yep. to beat at logging. Yep. When there are, f- f- there's more logging providers. There's probably 10 times the number of logging providers that there are for crash reporting. Right. So I don't know why Datadog pulled oh, away. I,
1: we lo- I love Datadog. We, we spend um, a, a large amount of money on Datadog <laughs> per month in, uh, in our infrastructure budget. But it's not one of those products where you, you spend that money and go, ugh. Right. You know, there's some log management providers, which I won't mention the name of. Uh, we hear all time and time again that people are just spending i mean, I, I guess i can it just it's the splunks and the sumo logics of the world where there's terabytes of data going into these things and there's no insights coming out uh, and the, there's no none of the software team none of the developers or product teams have logins or credentials to the system and you need to have a, a degree in quantum splunk computing in order to understand how to extract that data genuinely I, I forget what the name of it is but there's a qualification you can take like splunk certified systems engineer or something like that it's not accessible and so there's this i Think you regret not regret it. You don't want to spend all that money for things that aren't accessible and 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 people don't want to go into that system. And I think if you look at a Datadog, especially because they st- the thing that I think attracted a lot of people to them was the the d the metrics uh, side of the things in their product. Innately out of the box, you got charts that show you if things are going up and down. You got the alerts out of the box. There wasn't any. You didn't have to have a degree to configure the uh, the settings of this thing. So you you got a lot of wow factor out of the box, and it. It's a product philosophy that we agree with as well. Specializing on something, doing something really well and having an opinion, but making everything extensible. And I think with the audience that we share, the, the software engineering and product audience, you have to do that. You, you want to be able to configure things, but you don't want to spend your life configuring things. So at least at that level, we share a philosophy. One of the things that we talk about a lot as a company is this: the concept of software stability. And I think that as you said, uh, four or five years ago, there were a lot of different, what used to be called error management, error monitoring solutions in the space. And we realized we were kind of at a a fork in the road. There were companies that were going to go towards being more like APM companies. And APM companies have historically been bought in by infrastructure or SRE or DevOps teams. And we decided to go a different direction. We decided to say, look, actually what we're measuring is stability. Stability can be measured with a single number that you can share between product and engineering. And it should be a tool for the product and engineering team, not for the infra ops and SRE teams. And so we we designed our entire product around getting information and answers to that different audience. So I think that's maybe why we've pulled away a little bit. And the distinction between
0: APM and and stability reporting so I think of an APM tool is like I'm looking at dashboards That's and right. like seeing th- line charts go up and
1: down. Exactly, aggregates and averages across the board. And I, the way we, obviously the the, the APM, the, the big players in the APM space, the new, the new relics and the app dynamics of the world, they have large product suites now. They do a lot of things, but their core products and their roots, I think come from uh, the DevOps scene. And, and and in that space, you're you're effectively saying detecting when something's broken and escalating it to someone. And we don't believe in that philosophy. We we think that we should help you understand why something is broken and who the most valuable customers are that are affected or exactly what the steps are to reproduce and therefore fix the bug. And that's not a philosophy that's shared by the APM players. So I mean this is a again historical thing, but A lot of APM tools, like a new relic, for example, are adopted by the CIO. And sure, there's a component of understanding customer impact and things like that. But quite often they're adopted to optimize and maintain cloud spend. And so by spending however many thousands a month on on a new relic, you can see... Which functions are slow and therefore which functions to optimize first to reduce your uh, number of AWS instances that you have spun up. So there is a ROI component that's kind of purely mathematical, but none of that points to this customer is seeing a problem and here's the exact steps to reproduce or tying software issues really tightly to your project management tool like a like a jira for example where you're planning and and running your 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 projects so yeah fundamentally i think apm is is for people who are running applications and stability management is for people who are building applications
0: integrations that's another thing like when i try to solve the datadog mystery why datadog one it does seem, integration seems like one component of this sort of attention detail kind of thing like they just built all the integrations and made them work well and then they have they built some kind of scalable system for maintaining those integrations which to me seems seems hard i think like you know in an ideal world all the providers that you're integrating with would never break back compatibility with the api changes but I, I imagine that that does happen yep i mean how do you manage the the swath of integration you know you got to integrate
1: with slack and asana and this and right. that and everything we have about 40 different integrations right now from over 40 integrations and it we don't officially tag them out like this but i think the way that we do this is we have integrations that really really matter to the business and there's maybe five there's a common suite of things that everybody, pretty much all of our customers use. They all use Slack. They all use uh, Jira. They all use PagerDuty. They all use GitHub. And they all use an SSO provider and there's basically two that matter. And so there's maybe five or six integrations that are completely essential to our business. And so for those, mm-hmm. we... My engineering team is is based out of Bath in the UK, and they they built our integration services. It's Java microservices. I think there's a lot of Go uh, being written right now, and that's and that's sweet. And the metrics and the detail that goes into when something goes wrong on those integrations is insanely good. And a lot of it goes into Datadog actually. And so we know (laughs) uh, we'll get an alert from Datadog if suddenly we get an increased uh, 500 rate from a JIRA, for example. And a lot of the time it might just be because our third party services API is down. But sometimes it will be like, um, for example, recently Atlassian deprecated some of their APIs and authentication techniques. And so we caught it, they, they, they sent out a notice but it didn't come to the right email address, And so we caught it and, and patched it really quickly based on the metrics that we have. But I think that integrations providers are pretty good at not hard deprecating old APIs, which means that for the remaining 32 to 35 integrations that we have, we don't need to... We can leave them kind of as is. We can keep them running as they're going right now. And a lot of the time they disappear. We had a HipChat integration for a long time and now HipChat's not a thing. So <laughs> it kind of self-deprecates itself and it disappears. But yeah, I think that-, that goody- <laughs> I wouldn't count that <laughs> happening very often. <laughs> you'd, you'd be surprised oh, when, you really? get to the, when you get to the long tail, when you do have 40 plus integrations, okay. there are companies that come and go, especially if you, we were talking about how crowded certain spaces are right now, like log management. Project management and issue tracking is probably one of the most crowded spaces out Ooh, there and people actually churn out of that one big time big time and so yeah there are times where we're like okay they've said they're shutting the service down great we don't have to maintain that integration do anymore. do
0: people churn out of old error monitoring tools
1: absolutely we scoop up a lot of customers really? that way yes really <laughs> yep you can yeah. probably yeah, you know the space well you can probably imagine which uh, which I players were, were big can. in the past that don't really show up much anymore yeah
0: Ooh. you know it's interesting, just having this conversation I'm observing, I feel like seven years ago, probably the time when you started this business, if we were having this conversation about all the tools that you use and all the things that you have to integrate with, the conversation would be much more about open source tools and libraries, programming right. languages. Now we're talking about SaaS tools. Yeah, It's like your business, like businesses have become instead of a composition of open source tools it's a composition of saas tools yes. you have any like any just observations on how software development has changed with just the fact that we're now software development is the process of comp- of saas composition yeah. rather than open source composition
1: i think that the open source composition layer is never going to go away and i think that especially when it comes to the infrastructure that you're building your business on A lot of businesses I really, really respect are built on this open source mentality. So like Docker and HashiCorp, for example, are both building the infrastructure layer in an open source manner and then monetizing via services and and, and premium features on top of that. And that makes a lot of sense to me as a former CTO in terms of the ability to switch out, right? We've done at least once in the past. We've, at my previous company, we moved from dedicated servers to AWS. Bugsnag, we've moved from AWS to GC. To Google Cloud's offering, and by running on open source, well-supported technologies, you can make those. You know, previously these used to take months and months and months to make these kind of moves, and you can make those moves in a relatively quick and easy way. It's still painful a little bit, but you get the benefits of switching provider without all of the downsides. So we tend to adopt open source infrastructure, and I think that's why it's so popular across the board. When it comes to things like that I do not think a core to the business are not core IP. Even five, 10 years ago, I think in this space, error monitoring, people would roll their own. Uh, there are customers that we have. And still today, there are customers that we talk to have their own version of Bugsnack. And always it's horrendous and obviously <laughs> because it is built by a, a developer on their s- side time on a weekend project and they bring it in to solve a problem that existed maybe before Bugsnag existed or maybe because they hadn't discovered Bugsnag yet and we come in and more often than not the developer who built that there's no politics there they're like thank goodness that someone else has come in and, and built this with a team of 40 something people to, to, to build and maintain this rather than me having to do it on the weekend so I think when it comes to to things like monitoring and payments and authentication, all these kind of pluggable things, I think that you're less bound to the infrastructure. You can, in theory, swap swap them in and swap them out. And then it's on us as a product company to make sure that our product is good enough that it's a sticky solution that people don't churn off. So it's more that it's less sticky because of the you've built on a proprietary technology, but it's sticky because the, the customers like the product. So I think that's the distinction. It's not a clean line, but I think there is a distinction between infrastructure and supporting services. Why'd you move to GCP? Oh, that was a a fun one. I think most of the reasons that we moved have actually been addressed by AWS now, which is slightly annoying, but I'll get this wrong because my co-founder and team did the move. But there were a few things like AWS used to shut down instances when there was a problem with an instance or or a, a security patch had to, to, to be up to, applied at the kernel or whatever. And they would send you an email saying, we're going to shut down this instance, make sure you move it across from A to B or whatever. And so, you know, for uh, most of our services these days are in Kubernetes clusters, that doesn't matter where they're running. But for our databases, we are not putting our, currently putting our databases in a Kubernetes cluster. We're, we're manually managing the, the, the primaries and secondaries and failover and all that kind of stuff. So if AWS happened to want to shut down your, your database primary, then you had to stop on what your infrastructure team was doing and work on flipping it over. So uh, GCP have magic migration under the hood. They have a layer of abstraction that means that you never know when an instant goes away. So that was a huge win. The other thing I think that GCP has had going for it, I'm not sure if, if AWS has improved this yet, was the way that you could reserve instances. With AWS, you, you had to, there's this weird marketplace concept where you had to reserve and then if you change the size of instances you were using, you would then have to sell your instances that you'd bought previously, reserved previously on a marketplace. And it's like, we did getting into building a company to (laughs) to be eBay sellers, it doesn't make any sense. And so GCP basically just, again, abstracts it away and you just get volume discounts for using more services. So they were the two major things, I think, that made us make the leap. Also, Google was really early on on um, uh, Kubernetes as a service as well, and we're heavy into Kubernetes. So that was kind of the three reasons. So you manage your own databases? We do. We kind of have to. I kind of mentioned this earlier. We process something like over a billion crash reports per day. Crash reports are not small. It's not just one integer that we're incrementing. They are between 10 and... 500 kilobytes. uh, I think averaging something like 50 kilobytes these days with a lot of mobile payloads that we have. So when we get a crash report, it has a stack trace. It has a full thread dump. It has diagnostic information. It has what we call breadcrumbs, which is a list of user actions that led up to a crash. So it's quite a lot of text and data that we have to process and store. And I think this is true. We're still the only provider that Stores and indexes all of these crash reports. I think a lot of the other players in the space take this stance of, hey, we can just toss some of these away and do some sampling and and hide that for the user. And so we saw store and save everything. And so we're also processing something like seven over seven billion sessions in per day. So. On a client-side application or, for example, every time you open the app, we want to detect that a session has happened so that we can give you a baselined stability score. So rather than just saying you had 20 crashes today, we can say 99.9% of your sessions were crash-free, which is then a a baseline number. It's an apples-to-apples comparison, even across multiple applications. And so we're processing billions and billions and billions of, of data points per day. And the databases as a service... Don't really work well at that scale. We're able. We're a, a very strong gross margin business, and we're able to maintain those strong gross margins by understanding databases and how to scale them. I think maybe we, we're always looking at this. Obviously, we don't want to run databases. It's a skill that we we kind of. Built via necessity again. Coming back to that bootstrap mentality and that revenue-centric mentality I said earlier, we're always going to keep an eye on the the cost dynamics of 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 these kind of things. But if you think think about it, these businesses that that run databases and services need to need to make a profit. They need to make a premium over the uh, the baseline. And for us, we have a relatively small infrastructure team. We have, I think it's three now. Actually, someone literally just started today, the third person on the infrastructure team. So we have three people on our infrastructure operations team managing this huge Kubernetes cluster and this huge Elasticsearch cluster and this huge MongoDB cluster, and they're doing a great job of it. So we don't need to move yet, and if the cost dynamics come down, then we'll probably think about it. Where do the managed databases fall over? They, You would think you get excellent economies of scale, but in cloud computing land, there's a limit. It's not like in um, if you're pricing something on a per-seat basis— it's zero marginal cost to, to discount on additional seats. But in cloud computing, it always comes down to CPU and memory usage under the hood or, or actual servers with server time that you're leasing out to customers via instances or whatever. So the economies of scale aren't there. So, yeah. Mm. Wow. It's it's a significant difference so, as well. It's not just like a 10%. So,
0: oh, okay. So it's not that they don't perform well, it's oh, no. literally the economics.
1: Yeah. I think that I remember this is really early on at Bugsnag. Uh, at one point, we still run on MongoDB for our canonical document store. So every crash report that comes in is stored uh, in MongoDB. And we do that because it's it's fairly unstructured data. It's structured, but it, the um, Android crash report differs wildly from a Ruby on Rails crash report, for example. And so at that made sense at the time, and it still makes sense. But I remember we went to a Mongo conference and we found out at one point that we were running a Mongo cluster in comparable size to Facebook. And Whoa! Yeah, and I mean, that's mainly because Facebook weren't using Mongo as their main database, but they were using it for for pars and other other things under the hood. And so, yeah, we were like, "Oh wow, okay." So if you look at a lot of these databases as service providers, they're really really optimized for people like. I'm doing a, a CRUD application. I'm, yes. And it's, it's their whole business model and pricing model is optimized around that. And so when you get into big volumes and big scale, I think almost everyone runs their own run database instances at that scale. So yeah, it seems to be working out so far. <laughs> I'll report back next time. <laughs> and have you looked at anything else like Cassandra or looked at relational databases? We did at some point, I imagine... What we might do, now we have Elasticsearch in place as our uh, um, search and indexing store. I think we may split out our Mongo database into a relational database and then maybe a flat file store. So Mongo effectively... There's a few indices in there, but the main index is look up crash report by ID. Right. Do you know what's really good at doing that? File stores.
0: <laughs> right. you know, S3,
1: is, that's exactly what S3 does. Right. And that way we would not have to run a huge cluster of MongoDB. We could just put it in uh, S3 or Google's equivalent of S3. But our Mongo store right now is crash report data plus the relational layer of users and accounts and, and, and projects and all that kind of stuff. What's your caching layer? We have Redis for all of our caching, um, but we have a lot of queues these days. So we have, I'm going to get this wrong. We have RabbitMQ, but we also have, oh, Kafka. That's right. So we have RabbitMQ and Kafka. So we've split, Redis is not, we use Redis for queuing at one point, uh, right at the beginning of the company. And then we got to the point where we needed a guarantee ingestion and no, no back pressure on ingestion. And we needed to make sure that if one of our services fell over, that we could still back process the events that came in. And again, we're processing a billion crash reports per day so that back pressure fills up pretty quickly imagine getting a clog in your in your pipe in your toilet it's gonna it's gonna come back to the client and it's a very busy toilet <laughs> it's a very busy toilet and a lot of our customers so yeah a lot of our customers would be really mad if they lost some crash reports and so we can't do that you know everyone jokes with me all the time about hey who monitors the monitoring solution and so we effectively have to data dog. <laughs> yeah exactly or data data dog for, for for a lot of this stuff but for um so we have um this show brought to you by <laughs> yeah, I know, right? we're gonna get commission i think on this we have a uh, obviously our SaaS offering of Bugsnag, which is where everyone signs up for trials and, and kicks the tires and, and and most of our revenue comes from but we also have an on-premise version of Bugsnag. it's the same product but you can install it on your own servers and that's more for compliance reasons and all that kind of stuff but we actually run our own on-premise version of bug snag, as well as our cloud instance. Because if there's a bug in our cloud instance, we actually report the errors to a separate instance of Bugsnag, snag, which is our internal uh, on-premise instance of Bugsnag. snag. Yeah, that's so that's nice dog fooding. It's, a, it's dog fooding and it's also a decoupling on there as well, so yeah.
0: The on-prem solution, it's my cat. <laughs> uh, cat doesn't like the on-prem solution. <laughs> what was hard about building that?
1: Cause like, yeah, I mean, you you lose operational control. Yeah, so on-prem, you do not get the visibility of what's happening, that's the main frustration. So with our SaaS service, we're able to see measure the success of our customers a lot easier. So we can see if someone is adopting adding more users to their account or we can see if someone's a, set up a Rails app and then maybe they looked at our mobile offer, mobile offerings and added an Android and iOS app at the same time. And we can even, with the permission of the customer obviously, we can go and have a look at their account and recommend things that they can improve to, to improve the quality of their experience inside of Bugsnag. With on-prem, you can't do any of that and it's by design. It's a black box. We allow people to run Bugsnag behind their firewall, no phone home, And so the hardest thing, I think, is the customer success aspect. We have to be really intentional. We have to almost force people to have an on-site QBR, quarterly business review, where we come on site and talk about how, look at their dashboard on their uh, premises and and see how it's looking and and, and recommend improvements. In terms of the tech side of building it, we cobbled together our own kind of on-prem, I guess you would call it cluster management uh, uh, thing when we launched Bugsnag on-prem first. And it was great. And a lot of our early on-premise customers loved using it. We moved about a year and a half, two years ago to actually a service called Replicated. And so Replicated is a a service that helps you do container orchestration in on-prem environments effectively. And so- They just became
0: sponsors of the show.
1: Did they really? Yeah, there they did, you yeah. go. So uh, thumbs up to Replicated. You're doing a
0: great. And Datadog has been a long time sponsor. You are. I'm accidentally <laughs> giving props to all the sponsors. serious sponsored content.
1: Yeah. Hopefully, uh, you, when you have Replicated on, you know they can give us props the other way. Hopefully, but, uh, so yeah, it takes all of the the pain of of orchestrating containers on an on-prem environment away. Things like license management, and so yeah, for um, it's a not a huge part of our business in terms of revenue, but the customers that are. Using it, are, I can't talk about them. I wish I could. You know their names. They right. are very, very big companies right. with with a, a very specific compliance requirements, and so it's a very strategically important part of our business.
0: This has been an interesting downstream effect of Kubernetes. Is the fact that there are these companies now that do the distributed systems delivery.
1: Process. It's
0: basically the distributed systems equivalent of installing a CD
1: on your computer. That's what Kubernetes allows. Yeah, packaging. You you think about Kubernetes and all the great stuff it brings you, but we actually didn't adopt Kubernetes for a while. You know, we we're all in now and and it's great. But you really need to know what you're doing running a Kubernetes cluster. There is a lot of stuff going on, and so if you're trying to take all the benefits of a Kubernetes cluster and deliver them onto your customers' infrastructure. Yeah, you need to abstract that away. It, we do not want our customers calling us up and saying, hey, uh, how do I run this kube control function or whatever? They don't care about that. They're using bugs because they want us to solve their problems, not create problems. So yeah, container orchestration and Kubernetes management is, I mean, for us on SaaS, we use Google's. Kubernetes environment, and it's it's pretty nice. We right. get we get a lot of it out of the box, and uh, we don't feel like we're tied into some proprietary thing. Like uh, Amazon have their container service that's not Kubernetes. ECS. but yeah, they also have AKS right. They have right? EKS as well, but EKS. but, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they are all in on that. You know, uh, th- you're, mm. they're running both still. Google basically said, it's going to be Kubernetes. This is how we're going to do it.
0: Right. But the, but the, I think that's more of a legacy aspect. Might,
1: yeah, it might be just because they have so many customers on ECS that they have to support yeah. that environment. You're probably right.
0: Well, because ECS was an interesting bet, because they made that during the container orchestration wars, when we were unsure if Mesos was going to win yeah. or Kubernetes was going to win. Or what was it, Docker
1: Swarm had to go Docker as well. Swarm, yeah. <laughs>
0: What are the do's and don'ts of marketing a developer product? I mean, there's so many ways you can spend money. Like you can go to AWS reInvent and spend your entire marketing budget or you can spend zero money like Stripe.
1: Yeah, well you can do, you've been to reInvent, I'm sure. It, it, Actually it's, I haven't. You haven't, okay. I'm
0: thinking of going this year. I know it's like Mecca, like it's like the worst and the best of Mecca. I
1: mean, <laughs> it, you know? it is, it is um, I mean, it's everything everyone's told you it is. You, you go there and there are bajillions of software engineers and product people all in one place and it's it's just heaving with people oh God. and there is it's in was it in the venetian and the conference floor there are people who have got a startup and they're like right marketing says we need to make a splash so we need to spend twenty, fifty thousand dollars on a booth at, at, at reinvent
0: dude that's not gonna make a splash at reinvent so you that's end like... up at reinvent and you've got a little corner <laughs>
1: the, six yeah. by six yeah. and you're towered over by someone else so i mean i i joke about this we've we've certainly done it we've done reinvent before maybe we'll do reinvent next year again but i think people talk a lot i mean brand is very important obviously but you've got to be really strategic about how you deploy that. If you go to a reInvent and you spend $50,000, $50,000 for a startup is a lot of money, sure. but at like reInvent, it, it's nothing. nothing, it's irrelevant. And so you end up in a corner and, you know, you've got these tens of thousands of software developers walking around, maybe 3% of them walk past your booth. And so this, I think a lot of people make that mistake. They're like, let's just get a booth at a big conference. For us, Events are a really key part of our strategy. We do 10 to 15 events per year. We just hired a new event specialist who is going to be ramping up our events for next year as well. We've historically done a lot of uh, grassroots platform-driven events. So, for example, this year, I think it's in November, we'll be at DroidCon SF. And DroidCon SF is, it's not a huge conference, but if you look at the quality of the speakers that goes to that conference, they're just absolutely excellent. Every so Android every Android conference? Android conference, um, it's the non-Google Android conference, so it's not okay. Google I/O. Sure, and it's accessible. And we they they do three right. Droid cons. I think there's New York, Boston, and uh, San Francisco in America, North America. And we go to all three of them, and we get a booth every time. And we because we're I think we're pretty much the de facto uh, commercial uh, stability management tool in in the Android space and in the iOS space. And so half of it is meeting customers. I remember actually last year's Droid Con SF. We had a booth, I went down, cause it's just down the street. So I went and said hi to everyone. And we had, so Airbnb is a customer and Slack is a customer and they were both had speakers. And so they stopped by our booth to say hi. We found out after the Airbnb talk that the speakers from Airbnb had name dropped Bugsnag in the talk Oh uh, yeah! because suddenly all of these people who were in the talk were like, hey, we're figuring out how to manage stability in our application as well. And we were just swarmed at the booth. And so we like conferences where there's maybe 5 to 10 exhibitors there and we are there's a really good audience fit and we can actually genuinely spend time talking to people about what their problems are and how we might be able to help. Having said that, now we have an event specialist, we're getting a little bit more ambitious. So we're doing uh, GitHub Universe this year. And I think, well, I'm not sure if I can say what we're sponsoring yet, but we have a cool, if you're at GitHub Universe, swing by. We have a really cool, uh, different sponsorship opportunity. I, I wouldn't be surprised if GitHub Universe was still
0: underpriced, because that's kind of like a, na- That to me, I haven't been there, but from what I've seen and heard, it's a nascent Reinvent. It's It's getting
1: really. It's getting bigger now. It is getting. They're always. They always pick an amazing venue. I, I give GitHub props in that their events team really care about experience I think that maybe AWS reInvent did at the beginning but they can't now it's, <laughs> no, this, it's can't. just it's just a car park full of booths at one point whereas the GitHub universe and again I'm not sure if we're, we're able to talk about this yet but we have a it's not just a table we have a we have a really cool thing that we're doing at GitHub universe is um, it a bouncy castle? <laughs> <laughs> bouncy that'll be so that would be uh, that's one of the you asked about do's or don'ts for marketing oh, for oh, developers I'll tell you what being condescending is, is, a, is a hard no for us like there's a lot of people who don't Simon and I are both math and computer science majors we both product engineering people we've been building software our whole lives and every time we think about how do we want to talk to people about our product we think what would make us happy what would make us excited and my marketing team is super tuned into this as well and so you see people giving out I saw a tweet about this the other day, someone at a conference was giving out Nerf guns at a conference and I'm like, why are you treating software developers like teenagers right. or oh kids, you God, know? Dude, it's, it's so, so condescending. And it's like, you know what, just go there, be classy, have great conversations and be genuine. And I think if you do that and you understand how to be genuine with the audience, which I think comes naturally to us, I think you get results and you get success. So they, I think that applies to events that applies to advertising. it applies to podcast sponsorships. It's not like we do a hundred of the podcast sponsorships. We pick the ones where we like the content and we think the content is genuine because we think it aligns with our brand. So that's being genuine and not being condescending are probably two, two major rules there.
0: We were talking a bit before the show that you you used to work at Hayzap and which You know, I didn't really realize until I, you know, I interviewed Jude, who runs Golden now, which is a really ambitious and interesting company. Heyzap was an ad tech company. Do you actually learn anything about advertising
1: at an ad tech company, or is it more like? You just learn about auctions. <laughs> There's a lot of things that you learn about. You don't necessarily learn about the whys behind why people are buying ads or why they're doing the particular behaviours that they're doing. Also, Hazap was interesting in that when I joined in 2009, it, it wasn't an ad tech company. It started off as um oh this is going to really age the company now. It started off as a embeddable Flash arcade. So you could take your Whoa. Flash games, <laughs> yeah. Flash oh, okay. doesn't even really exist anymore, but you could take your Flash games that you would play on MiniClip or Congregate or whatever and embed them into an arcade and put them on your website but and then it evolved into a mobile game recommendation app and so the core throughout the entire life of the company was recommending other games that you could play so naturally it evolved into an ad tech company because if you know a customer likes playing game a and b and you can then predict that they like game c okay. it's a, a massive benefit over just random ad presentation so we learned about ad conversion, we learned about how we could use recommendation to improve the quality of ads. And that's it. I don't think I'd work in the ad tech space again, but I think it's nice to have that recommendation stuff because not only do you get higher quality uh, conversions on your ads, so it's more money for, for, for everyone, but also you're giving ads that customers like to see. they just, it's not an industry that that, that I think is, is exciting to me uh, anymore, but yeah, so I didn't really learn a lot about ads. i tell you what we did learn about though, scale. Like some of the things, so Simon, uh, my co-founder, I brought him out to San Francisco, convinced him to join Hayzap. Uh, so he worked at App for, for a year, a year and a half to run my mobile team at App and convinced him to come out and... Uh, he would also work on some infrastructure projects and architecture projects. And holy moly, the amount of traffic that comes in from an ad company. We joke about how Bugsnag is effectively, we're being DDoSed all the time because our client is inside of all of these major brand name applications like Airbnb and Lyft and Pandora and all these kind of apps. And so if any of these apps crash, we have to take the brunt of all of that. And so it's not like we're being attacked, but it's the same traffic pattern as a DDoS. Ad tech is exactly the same. If you think about it, we learned a lot about scale. We learned a lot about how how to make SDKs. So we built SDKs for these ad ad for game developers and publishers that would present the ads. But also, you had to report back every single ad impression, and so that's a lot of data points coming back. So I learned a little bit about ads, but I learned a lot about scale, and I learned a lot about mobile SDKs, big time.
0: And bringing this back to Bugsnag, the scale that you deal with does that require you to Make some kind of negotiations with the cloud provider, like, you know, I don't know, can we get like bulk pricing or burst pricing
1: or something? It's funny because, again, I'm not trying to advertise GCP here. GCP has a really nice discount curve, it seems to work pretty well, and they have nice reserved instances or whatever they call them over there. The funny thing is, even though we have all this scale, we're pretty efficient about how we run our infrastructure. And so, when I hear rumors of how much some other Bay Area unicorn companies are spending on their cloud instances, it's, we're spending nothing compared to them. And so, I wonder if we, we haven't really worked on trying to get the discounts directly, special discounts, but I, I I imagine we're small fry compared to an Airbnb, for example, right? I imagine that Airbnb has that clout and, and the amount of spend where they could come in and say, let's, let's get a discount here, otherwise we're going to move off. I think... The good thing about having, you know, these three major cloud players now is that they there's a lot of competition. And I love the fact that AWS does this all the time, but GCP, I get the emails where it's like, hey, we just made everything cheaper. And I'm like, oh, wow, we didn't even, we get that without opting in, it just happens. And so there's, everyone's trying to catch up with AWS. And so there's a lot of competition in the space. And so I think the they're well incentivized to make sure the pricing curves are really, really well-tuned. We don't want to have to be op- negotiating with these guys either. They, they save sales budget and we don't have to waste time talking to them as well. So, How do you see Google Cloud and AWS diverging in the future? What are their core competencies? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I like the way that Google is focusing on developers. And you'd think everyone is focusing on developers. Actually, Microsoft's starting to take a, take a stab at this as well. But... I think that AWS started off being very obviously focused to infrastructure teams, whereas Google have built developer platform layers on top of that. So they have a mobile developer platform with Firebase. They've been acquiring in actually a lot of companies that have helped them build this portfolio of of strong developer uh, projects. But they're also obviously developing Kubernetes, which is a a big fan's favorite in the developer space. They're also developing Spinnaker, which is an up and coming uh, technology that I think is going to be really big. And everything gets put back to the community. You don't really see that with AWS. It's not really, sure, they open source stuff, but it's not really part of their DNA. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I'm a bit biased because we use their service and and Google Ventures is an investor in us as well. But as a developer, I think the the one of the big three that is putting the most effort into winning the developers, I think is Google. So yeah, they've got to find an angle because AWS is such a behemoth. They've been this huge company that that got in early. They've got to find angles to, to win. I think that's one they're going for.
0: Did you ever take any acquisition offers seriously?
1: We get people knocking on the door. Simon and I talk about the motivations for building our business, you know, when we've got a new hire that's joining or we're interviewing someone, these questions come up all the time. We're motivated. We're product guys. We're motivated by building something. So we're builders. And so right now, what we're really focused on is just building the absolute best product that we can. One of the things that I think is frustrating about building a business is you always wanna do more. And so we're six, seven years into building this company and the roadmap just keeps on getting longer. There's so much stuff that we have to build. And so I think right now, we're just focused on building out that roadmap. like. 24 months ago we just changed our product and our positioning around the the concept of stability instead of error monitoring and we're like great you know let's 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 double down on that and let's move on to the next thing but then as soon as we did that all of our customers are like this is great we love this can you do this can we do this can we do this and so it's almost like and it's exciting as a product person it's obviously exciting to have that roadmap ahead of you but it's almost like that. That's the only thing we can focus on right now. The business is growing well. Uh, we're getting excellent logos and ex- excellent customers. Revenue is growing. So just continuing to build the best product because we know there's a long way to go still is kind of taking up the most time. Yeah, but we've we've had there's people who knock on the door. We've had conversations, but it's never been exciting for us. You know, building the business out, especially given the growth we've got at the moment, is is the focus.
0: I wonder how many years until. You've got a data dog-sized opportunity. I mean, to me, it seems inevitable, right? Like, I mean, I think today the amount of data that's going into logging is obviously some multiple of the number of the amount of data that's going into a crash monitoring tool. But given the increased number of, of companies that are going to need crash monitoring, eventually the volume of data is going to be the same. Yep. That datadog is get is in ingesting today, and I imagine your your per bit price of monitor of a uh, crash monitoring data it, you probably have better margins than the per bit price of a logging provider so you think about the unit economics of your
1: business compared to datadog well it's interesting as well the the way I think about it and the way a lot of our customers talk about this is the the price per data that they actually look at and so, like I said earlier, with the, with these log- logging solutions, I think a lot of the time it's a black hole of data. You're just dumping data terabytes and terabytes of data into a, a giant file, effectively. And so with Bugsnag, yeah, we're collecting a lot of data, but we're applying a lot of meaning layers to it after we ingest it. Which is, to be honest, that's a bulk of our I think of our cloud spend is the processing and and storage of of these crash reports in a meaningful format. And so, yeah, I think that. People tell, tell us all the time, and I said this about Datadog's StatsD engine, uh, um, I forget what the product's called now. If you get the data into a meaningful, useful format, then you're going to feel better about paying for this kind of stuff. And yeah, we do price based on the volume of crash reports that you send it. So if we are pricing based on the volume of data that you're sending in, and our customers know that they need all that data and are happy about that data, it's a much better position to be in than these kind of legacy log management solutions that you're annoyed about how much data is being pumped into these systems because it costs you a lot of money. So yeah, for us, I think it's about awareness and brand building. I think a lot of people have legacy systems in place that they've cobbled together, like I said. And once people get to the position where they're like, we absolutely need this, this is crucial to our business. And over the past six or seven years, the tide is turning. So I'm I'm hoping that continues. And in which case, yeah, I think we could be, I think we could be a, a, a data dog sized business. Do you think you'll have to raise money again, or is it straight path to IPO at this point? <laughs> I think on the path to IPO, people raise money. The, the right motivation to raise money is when you have something that is working that you want to put in on a flywheel. And so I think it's probably likely that we'll raise money again. I can't really talk about like when I'm thinking about doing that, but the there are things in our business that are working really well. And we obviously want to double down and invest on it. We've been able to increase our spend pretty regularly. Things like marketing spend. We've increased our marketing spend. We're very ROI centric on marketing. Um, we've been able to increase it from the original budget for 2019, I think three times already this year. So I think we're able to be lean and reinvest the money wisely. But yeah, when you find engines, you want to put fuel into those engines. So,
0: Is there any conventional wisdom about building a software company that you have avoided?
1: I'm not sure about avoided. I think that there's things that we, we've we considered, especially things like pricing models. There's a lot of people who might expect our pricing to be like a pure per seat pricing, you know, like a Slack, you pay per developer using the product. And we definitely are avoiding doing that. We're a utility, we're more closer to an AWS utility-based uh, ingestion-based model than we are a, a Slack. I think that a lot of companies spend a ton of money on marketing and We'll raise, there's a lot of companies who raise a ton of money and invest it without thinking about ROI. And then you've seen this, the classic Bay Area venture back company where they, they oh, let's go and raise this huge, massive round and then let's just throw it all at AdWords to juice our numbers. And it's just not really in our DNA to do that. We we invest heavily where we see ROI. And it's working and it's paying off. So we're gonna to continue to do that, but we're not gonna take this spray and pray approach to growth to hope something sticks. So I think maybe that's the way we've we've avoided doing things. Last question,
0: building a business in San Francisco, overrated or underrated?
1: That's a really good question. We're, um, I think, well-placed to discuss that because we have a 40-something person company and half of our company is here in San Francisco and half of our company is in the UK and in uh, in Bath, which is where our engineering team is based. And there is a reason that two guys with a British accent are starting a company in one of the most expensive cities in the world. Some of the best product and engineering teams, the most forward-thinking product and engineering teams are here in San Francisco or down the peninsula. And... Our product has evolved rapidly based on our conversations with these customers. Like we're just down the street. We're right next to Twitter right here. We're just down the street from Uber. Uh, we're able to go on site with these with these uh, prospects uh, or we're able to go to Airbnb and we tell them, hey, use this as a therapy session. Moan at us. Tell us what sucks about software development. Tell us what sucks about Bugsnag if you think anything sucks about Bugsnag. And rather than being a company that's halfway across the world, that's just going back and forth over support tickets. We then come back, we discuss it as a product team. We prioritize our roadmap based on the things that we've heard. And I think that's what's driven our, our direction of our product. So our engineering team, however, is in Bath. The engineering team is absolutely fantastic there. The, I was just in the UK two weeks ago, uh, spending time at the office. We have, access to world-class talent. We've got people who've got 10-something years of software engineering experience. They're building scalable services in Java and Go. Maybe Java's not the sexiest language these days, but it's really appropriate for what we do. So they're building the services in it. Sure is. I think if you're working in the the developer space or if your customers are going to start off as technology companies, which our original customer base was, you probably need to spend time with those technology companies and a lot of them are here. So that's why as a founding team and as a sales and marketing team, we're based here in San Francisco. But engineering, I think you'll see this from most companies these days. It can be anywhere in the world as long as you've got great management and great communication and great collaboration. So that's the way I think about it, at least. I'm a bit biased there though. (laughs) James, great conversation. I really enjoy this. Yeah, it's a fun as always. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Okay,
0: thank you.